Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, we're continuing our series on uh, your dad, now what? And uh, what, what will we be exploring today? Good to be with you again, Brian. And I might just mention that a friend of mine recently released a book. I wrote the foreword for it. His book was titled Flaming Heretics Are Real. And it's a book that, it's not a hellfire and damnation book. It's written with some humor in it and scholarship and a very level-headed tone. But it's designed to help us understand that hell is real. And the scriptures clearly teach about hell. And that if we're not going to talk about it, we're not preaching the whole counsel of God. And we're not really telling people what they need to know. John Witherspoon was the president of, of, of the College of New Jersey, which we know today as Princeton. And he was the leader of the Evangelical Party in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland before he came to America and pastor of one of the most influential churches in Scotland at the time, lay character as it was called. And he once preached a message on the absolute necessity of salvation through Christ, in which he said there is no other way of salvation other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he received some criticism for this sermon from the more liberal elements of the church. They were saying that he wasn't being charitable. So he wrote another message, preached another message that was titled On the True Meaning of Charity, in which he said, you're not really being charitable to people if they're in danger and you don't tell them about the danger. If there is a rattlesnake, he didn't use this analogy, but if there is a rattlesnake, for example, right under your chair poised to strike you, and you decide that you'd rather talk about pleasant things, you don't want to talk about that rattlesnake, you're not doing your friend any favors. That true charity tells people of the dangers that they're facing. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, and that sermon was titled Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Preached that in 1741, and people have heard a lot about that sermon. They tend to think this was some kind of fiery preacher who stood up there and had blood dripping from his eyes and frothing of the mouth, which he did not. In fact, there is no preacher in history that I know of that's ever frothed of the mouth while preaching and ever had blood dripping from his eyes while he preached. But that's the image that people like to convey about preachers who preach about hell. And the whole logic behind that is that since we can't accept frothy mouthed and blood dripping preachers, we therefore can't expect to accept hell either, which when you think about it, that's totally illogical, but that's the reasoning that these people often use. But Edwards' sermon was not that kind of a sermon. In fact, Edwards was the kind of preacher who preached in a soft and quiet voice. He preached from a written text, and as he preached that message, he preached it in a very soft way, read the message, and yet people were crying in the aisles, how can I be saved? 
it produced that kind of a reaction. My suggestion would be that if Edwards were to preach that message today, it would probably fall flat. Not because it wasn't a good message, but because we have, generally speaking, a church community today that doesn't want to accept that kind of preaching. Edwards is preaching to an audience, colonial New England at the time, that believed in the reality of Scripture. And so when he preached about the reality of hell, people listened. And when he showed them that hell is a scriptural doctrine, they responded accordingly. But today, even evangelicals are sometimes a little skeptical about hell. And those who accept hell just think that it's something that they don't want to talk about. C.S. Lewis, for example, and I love C.S. Lewis. I love his Chronicles of Narnia and, and every other work that he's written there, The Abolition of Man and Mere Christianity. I think he's a marvelous writer, marvelous apologist for the Christian faith. But he says that he is very uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell, but he holds on to it for one reason, and that's that it's in the scriptures. Well, he's right on that. And I'm glad that he's holding on to it. But I'd have to have some reservations about his reason. It's kind of like he's apologizing for God. He's sort of saying, look, I wish God weren't this way. But he is. You know, he's being awful mean here. But it seems to be the truth. And so we just better adjust it and accept it. Truth of the matter is, Hell is a glorious doctrine. It's a glorious doctrine because it doesn't just show us the end for the wicked. It also shows us the thoroughness and completeness of God's judgment. And it shows us also the extent of his love, that when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, he didn't just send him to die because he wanted us to have an extension on our life, he sent his son to suffer and die and descend into hell because he wanted to save us from the consequences of hell. As I say, today, even Bible-believing Christians, even those who call themselves evangelicals, tend to be a little skeptical about hell. There was a few research study done in 2021, that's two years ago, showed that 73% of the American public believes in heaven, 62% believe in hell. That honestly did not surprise me. I thought it might be lower than that. But there are 61% who believe in both heaven and hell. And then there are 1% who believe in hell but don't believe in heaven. In addition to that, there are some 26% who don't believe in either heaven or hell. In August of 2020, there was another study, this time conducted by Arizona Christian University. This study showed that 54% of the people believe that they are going to heaven, and just 2% believe they're going to hell. 13% don't believe they're going anywhere. They don't believe in any life after death, and 8% believe in reincarnation, 8% believe in the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, 
And then there are a couple that don't fit into any of those categories. We use the word held as a figure of speech many times. We use it to talk about things on earth like my job is blank or my marriage or the sicknesses and so on. But we don't want to talk about eternal hell. Now, besides being a lawyer and talking about the Constitution and lecturing on constitutional cases, I have been ordained to the ministry for about 40 years. And until a few weeks ago, I had never actually preached a message about hell. I preached about hell in various messages, but I never had a message that I specifically devoted to hell before. And probably I should have been preaching on that much earlier than I did. So the first question we would want to ask then is, what does the Bible say about hell? And the first answer is that we do see hell referred to in the Bible about 31 times in the Old Testament and about 23 times in the New Testament. What I say about, I say about because it depends on what translation you use. We have an Old Testament word, sheol, which 31 times in the King James Bible it is translated as hell, but in 34 other places it is used to refer to the grave or sometimes to a pit or sometimes more broadly to the realm of death as a whole. In the Greek New Testament, we see the word Hades and 23 times that is translated as hell, but it is also sometimes translated in a broader sense as well. Many will say that Jesus spoke more frequently about hell than about heaven. Although again, that depends upon which translation of the Bible you use. And further that he spoke about hell approximately 16 times. As I said, the term hell appears in the New Testament 23 times. So what this means then is that most of the references to hell in the New Testament are by Jesus himself. We talk of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and yet it is he who tells us about hell. Let's look at a few references to eternal damnation that we see in the book of Matthew and other books of the New Testament in which we see Jesus speaking about this and sometimes using other words for it besides Hades or hell itself. Matthew 3.12, for example, he speaks about God and speaks of him as whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And on in 5.29, he says, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members, that is your eye, should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. In Matthew 25.30, he says, Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in 11 verses later, in 2541, he says, Then shall he say also unto 
to them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Further references, Mark 9, 43. And if thy right eye offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than to have two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Referred to there as hell and as the fire that shall never be quenched. And then in Luke 12, 2, and this I think is a verse that should be very sobering to us. I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him after he hath that is killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Earlier he says, don't fear those who can only kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear those who can cast body and soul into hell. Jesus clearly takes hell very seriously. And if he is our Lord and Savior, that means so should we. So we have to say, first of all, hell is a biblical doctrine. And it is a doctrine that is taught by no less than our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, several questions that we ask about hell. One is, is hell forever? Notice that Matthew uses the phrase, Christ, Christ uses the phrase in Matthew 3, 13, unquenchable fire. And Jesus again uses the phrase in Matthew 25, 41, everlasting fire. And in Mark 9, 43, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Mark 9, 44 talks about hell as being where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And then we read in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. All of this certainly gives us the suggestion that hell is permanent. Hell is eternal. There are some who might try to argue that, well, hell is eternal, but that doesn't mean that everybody that is cast into hell dwells there eternally. They could be cast into it and be eventually consumed. That doesn't sound like a very appetizing prospect either. But I think we have to assume from the way hell is described that it is eternity. Next, we ask the question, where is hell? Well, seems like the ancient world believed that hell was deep into the earth and it was a form of hell fire deep into the earth. And they would see volcanoes and so on erupting from down below the earth, and so they seemed to know then that there was fire deep within the earth. But is hell really down there, down in the center of the earth? In Matthew twelve forty, we read that, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
that suggests not the grave, but something deeper than the earth. Or if he's four verses eight through ten, therefore it says, this is speaking about his ascension into heaven after the resurrection. He was on earth forty days, and then he ascended into heaven. But in Ephesians four eight through ten, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host, host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now that's a mouthful. Let's try to explain what we mean here. There in Ephesians, Jesus, or the Paul is talking about Jesus, and he is saying that he ascended into heaven. He ascended high. He led a host of captives as he ascended into heaven. And anyway, when it says that if he descended into the lower parts of the earth, then consider that in like manner, he ascends into heaven. In fact, the angels, when Jesus ascended, even made the statement that he who descended into the earth shall in like manner ascend into the heavens. So his ascent into heaven is like his descent into the earth. Now his ascent into heaven didn't just go up six feet into the air. And so his descent into the earth is not just six feet down into the grave. It sounds like hell is in the fires of the innermost parts of the earth. But you can take that literally, or you can take it figuratively. And if you take it figuratively, you could say that maybe it's somewhere in another galaxy somewhere, or maybe it's in an entirely different dimension that is not bound by the space and time of this earth. I like the way St. John Chrysostom put it in the 400s AD. Chrysostom was kind of like the Eastern Orthodox Church's equivalent of St. Augustine of the West, that Augustine is the chief Western saint, Chrysostom is the chief Eastern saint, and great scholar, great preacher as well. But Chrysostom said concerning hell in the 400s AD, we search not for where it is, but how we may flee it. In other words, we're less concerned with the location than how we can flee it. Next question we would ask then is hell literal fire? Talk about the lake of fire and so on. Do we take that literally? Generally speaking, the rule of construction for the scripture that I prefer is preference for the literal interpretation. It's been said, and I've seen this quote attributed to several different people. I don't know who said it first, but it makes sense. If the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. In other words, there's a preference for the literal interpretation. And I will go along with that preference. But J.D. Greer put it like this. He says, if a particular image 
is a metaphor in the Bible, it's almost always because the full reality behind it can't really be described. In these situations, the reality is always much more intense than the actual physical image that is used. John Calvin said very much the same thing in the 1500s when he said, these forms of speech denote in a manner suitable to our feeble capacity, a dreadful torment, which no man can comprehend and no language can express. Well, what are Greer and Calvin saying here? They're saying that if hell is a metaphor, it is a metaphor for something worse. Greer goes on to say, so it's not that you'd say, oh, it's a metaphor, so it's really not that bad. Instead, it is something which the reality is so intense that the best way to describe it is by using these awful and horrendous images. In other words, if it is a metaphor, that doesn't mean that it is a lot easier than hellfire. Rather, it means that the reality is even worse. And whichever it is, literal or otherwise, it has to lead us to conclude with the author of Hebrews that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. C.S. Lewis talks about hell. I said earlier that he doesn't like the doctrine, but he acknowledges that it is a real doctrine. But the question is, do people go to hell? If they do, what's it going to be like for them in hell? And he says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is a question what are you asking God to do? What are unbelievers? What are those who reject Christ asking him to do? They're asking him to leave them alone. And Lewis says, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. He says, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. In other words, those who reject Christ, they have wanted God to leave them alone. And that's exactly what he does in hell. Hell is a place where God does leave them alone. C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia and the last book of the Chronicles, the last battle it is called, as there in the last part of that last book, we see a foretaste of those who are entering heaven. And he says concerning those who have rejected, all find what they truly seek. Let's comment on that more after the break.
And we are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about hell today, as in what happens after you die. And Colonel, I got to say, I'm really enjoying some of the insights that C.S. Lewis had to offer on this subject. Well, as he said in the Chronicles of Narnia, there are the last battle. All find what they truly seek. Those who are truly seeking God find him. Those who are truly seeking a place where they can be away from God, that's what they find as well. So what then is the nature of hell? Well, as Lewis had put it, those who reject Christ would be even more miserable in heaven than they are in hell. They want God to leave them alone. They want nothing to do with Christ. If despite that, they're in heaven, they're going to be more miserable there than they would be in hell. Does all of this mean then that hell is just a eternal giant torture chamber where we have demons with whips lashing people eternally? Well, there's a difference between torture and torment. And torture is inflicted by somebody else like a demon, for example, or a torturer, a slave driver, and so on. Torment is inflicted by ourselves, or can be self-inflicted. And the torment that people feel in hell may be the torment of knowing what they've lost by not having come to Christ. Now, the question that is sometimes asked is, are there degrees of punishment in hell? Catholic Church has talked about a doctrine of limbo. Limbo being a place that is not heaven, but is a place where good pagans, unbaptized babies, others, that they live in an area where they're outside of the fires of hell, and it's not so hot, it's not so difficult, it may even be fairly pleasant, but it's not the full blessing of heaven itself. That's a Catholic doctrine. And Dante, in his Inferno, in fact, in his Divine Comedy, which is the Inferno and Paradiso and so on, that this is from the Middle Ages, and the Divine Comedy probably shapes our pictures of what hell actually is as much as anything that was written outside the Scripture itself. Some will even say that Our concept of hell does not come from the Bible, it comes from Dante, but I would say Dante bases it a great deal upon the Bible itself. However, he does say that there are degrees of punishment in hell, that he talks about the nine circles of hell, and with more and more intensity as you get more toward the center of hell itself. And he talks about the different kinds of centers that might be at different levels of these degrees of punishment. I can only say that he may be right on this, that to say there are degrees of punishment in hell, there's a good possibility that there are. Nevertheless, all of this certainly does mean hell is definitely something that we want to avoid. Well, then, why is hell necessary? As noted earlier, C.S. Lewis said that He would love to discard the doctrine of hell, but he can't. 
because the scripture clearly teaches it. However, the problem with that statement, in my opinion, is that it is apologizing for God. It is, in effect, saying, I wish it weren't this way, but this is the way God is doing it, and so that's the way I have to breach it. Basically saying, if it were up to me, I wouldn't do it the way God does it. We can't apologize for God. What God does is right. Hell is necessary because of the perfection of God's justice and because of the enormity of sin. We think about sins, for example, and what sin could be so great as to merit this kind of punishment? But as the great Catholic scholar of the Middle Ages, St. Thomas Aquinas, put it in his Summa Theologiae, It is not that a sin against God is finite. No, a sin against God is infinite. The higher the person against whom a sin is committed, the graver the sin. That was true under Celtic law, for example, that the greater the offender, the greater the sin. In other words, a higher-ranking person was judged more harshly for the crime that he committed, because a higher standard of conduct was expected of him, but also who he sinned against. If it was a high-class person like the king, then that would be counted a greater sin and involved a greater penalty than if he sinned against a lower-class person. So Aquinas says, the higher the person against who it is committed, the graver the sin. It is more criminal to strike a head of state than a private citizen. And God is of infinite greatness. Let's say, for example, I punch somebody out on the street. Well, I'd get punished for that. Fine. Possibly some jail time. But let's say I punched out the President of the United States. Now, some of, well, let's not get into that right now. But anyway, but anyway, you punch out the president of the United States, you're going to be in a lot more trouble than if you just punch out a private citizen. In other words, the greater the punishment, or rather the greater the person the crime is committed against, the greater the offense and the greater punishment. One writer illustrated it this way. Let's suppose you saw somebody who was pulling the legs off an innocent off an insect. We'd be pretty shocked at that and say, that's cruel, you shouldn't do that. But instead, let's say that you see that person pulling the legs off a puppy. You'd be horrified at that. But now let's suppose you see somebody pulling the legs off a human baby. There, you'd almost certainly step in and do what you could to stop it. Maybe you would at the lower levels too, but again, the point is that the greater the entity you commit a crime against, the greater the nature of the crime and the outrage, and therefore the punishment. Hell is necessary to show God's majesty. It's necessary to show his sovereignty, his justice, 
It's also necessary to show his love. His love? Yes. Because of the awfulness of hell. The awfulness of hell tells us how much God loves us and how he gave his son to die for us, to save us from eternity in hell. Our salvation becomes all the more precious when we recognize what we are being saved from. And now a question that we need to ask as well here, and that is, who goes to hell? Perhaps it's better to ask it this way. Who escapes hell and goes to heaven? Christ's death on the cross is the only provision that we read about in Scripture for our sin. Is it possible that Christ's blood on the cross, the blood which covers all believers, all those who trusted in him? Is it possible that his blood on the cross might also cover some people who didn't believe in him? I can only answer that there is nothing in Scripture that suggests that possibility. Scriptures say, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 14, 12. In John, we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then two verses later, we read, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The person who does not believe in Jesus, John says, is condemned. But think of the words of Jesus himself. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Think of that statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't just say, I am one way, and one truth, and one life, but maybe Buddha is another, and Muhammad is another. No, he said, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. That's an exclusive claim. And to make clear that it's exclusive, he goes on to say, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Didn't say one way to come to the Father is by me. He said, no man cometh to the Father but by me. Now let's suppose somebody of, let's say, another religion, let's say a Muslim, comes to you and says, can I be saved by believing in Allah? Or do I need to change my religion and convert to Christianity and believe in Jesus Christ. Now, some Christians have differing answers to that question. Based on what I've just read from Scripture itself, neither is there salvation in any other, and so on. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I would say that the scriptures foreclose the possibility of any other plan of salvation. But on the other hand, I would also say that 
you would want to look at this from the standpoint of what we call Pascal's wager. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, right a couple of years ago, great mathematician, but also a great philosopher, a great apologist for the Christian faith. And Pascal, in his wager, would say, suppose the evidence for Christianity were 50-50, about 50% in favor, 50% against. Which way should you bet? Well, he said, if you bet in favor of Christianity and it turns out you are wrong, what have you lost? Nothing. You've had a better religion, more peace of mind, more joy here on earth, and you've lost nothing. On the other hand, if you choose to bet against Christianity and it turns out you're wrong, you lose eternity in heaven and you gain eternity in hell. So if the evidence is about 50-50, betting in favor of Christ is the best way to bet. Now let's take Pascal's wager and apply it in just a little different way to the question whether Jesus is the only way of salvation. If I tell this Muslim who is asking, no, you have to convert to Christ, he is the only way of salvation, and the Muslim says, okay, well then I guess that's what I have to do. Let's say he converts to Christianity, and it turns out I was wrong that he still could have gone to heaven as a Muslim. What has he lost by this? Nothing. He's had a better religion here on earth, and he still has the heaven that comes after death that he could have had as a Muslim or as a Christian, either one. But let's say I tell him, no, I think you can be saved by being faithful to Allah, I don't think you have to come to Jesus. Let's say I tell him that, and it turns out I'm wrong. The consequences then are eternal. I have just led him into an eternity without Christ and an eternity in hell. Point of the matter is, if there is any doubt about whether belief in Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, the safest way to bet is the literal way that he is the only way of salvation. Putting all of this together, how much time do we have, Brian? We have about 10 minutes. Okay. Putting all this together, I think we have to conclude these things. Number one, hell is real. Number two, it is a terrible place. Number three, we deserve it because of our sin. And number four, but thanks be to God, he hath provided for us the way of redemption. And so we'll conclude this portion by saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Well, Brian, what is going on in your world that is of interest? Well, I've been thinking about hell lately. Well, actually, very recently. <laughs> no, just um, it's it's very interesting, you know, to to reflect on on how it is seen so differently. And and I believe that each of the world's major religions, in some respect, um, believe. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna state this very broadly that what goes around comes around, meaning that there is, in some sense, a universal kind of justice that everyone must face. Um, now, you know, some religions believe it comes through reincarnation or karma or something like that, but 
I do believe that that uh, is is part of natural law. In fact, if you want to expand on that, I'd I would love to get your take about how um, universal justice, meaning God's justice, is a part of natural law. Well, we've mentioned that before, but I would certainly argue that for those who have a question about heaven, about life after death as a whole, that besides what the Bible says, and the Bible clearly teaches that, yes, we do live after death, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment, and that we find that clearly in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, but that for those who have some trouble accepting what the Bible has to say about there being a life after death, I think the idea that God is a just God is very helpful in coming to this realization. Even if we have some questions about life after death, if we're going to say God is a God of perfect justice, well, the fact is we have to acknowledge we certainly don't see anything close to perfect justice here on earth. Our courts don't administer perfect justice. We see criminals sometimes getting off scot-free. Once in a while, we see somebody being wrongly convicted. We see people who are convicted who get sentences that are sometimes much lighter and sometimes maybe heavier than they deserve. And so, and then not only that, but have to consider that's true here in the United States. And our system of justice here in the United States is probably better than it is in most other parts of the world. And we're just talking about the courts there. We look to the injustices that take place in school, on the workplace, and wherever we may happen to be. There are so many injustices in this world that it is hard to believe that God is a God of perfect justice if there is no life after death. If we believe in life after death, I mean, if we believe that God is a God of perfect justice, we have to believe in life after death. And that, I think, would have to mean we believe in an eternity of rewards in heaven, which are administered in the basis of grace, which we receive on the basis of faith, but also that there are punishments for those who have sinned. If God is a God of perfect justice, he can't just simply write sin off and say, we'll just forget it ever happened. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross, and his death will cover those who choose to trust in him. But for anyone else, what do they have to trust in? Really nothing, except their own works. And we're told in Scripture that our works are insufficient, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So looking at the concept of justice, I think that's another reason to believe in heaven and another reason to believe in hell. Yep. And I I think it's helpful to remember, as you as you pointed out, you know, we look around us and it really does seem like um, sometimes evil people prosper. And and I don't say this from the standpoint of I'm looking for, well, well they're going to get theirs one day. You know, <laughs> I look at it from the standpoint of, you know what, we're all going to get ours. There, there will be perfect justice meted out to every one of us. And, and I take Christ very seriously when he talks about the same way that you're willing to measure out justice to other people, that's how it's going to be measured out to you. So I try to be far less inclined to point the finger and say, 
make sure you judge that person or that group, you know, as harshly as possible. And instead, I, I picture myself on my knees begging, be as merciful to them as you would be to me. And please, you know, be merciful to me. And yet you, knowing God is a God of justice, we also want to say that, yes, as we pray, we need to recognize that God's provision for our sin is Jesus Christ. And so we want to pray that these people will come to know Jesus Christ and be covered by his blood. Hear, hear. Any final thoughts you'd like to share on, on this subject? I, I think I think you took a lot of the fear out of it. At least I'm speaking just for myself, but, um, you know, I agree with you. I think that uh, the way is through the, the one who proclaimed that he was the way, the truth, and the light. Um, now the question is, you know, how do people find him? What about those people who maybe don't, uh, you know, grow up in a, maybe they grow up in a country where, um, you know, the Christian religion is, is just out of reach. You know, what, what will happen to them? That's a difficult question. We can only say that the world has been evangelized many, many times in ways that we may not know of. Missionaries will come to a pagan tribe somewhere and find that they do have traces from the past of having known something about God. And we read, for example, that ye shall know the doctrine after ye have searched for it with all your heart. And as we read in the book of Hebrews, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In one way or another, I have to believe that those who want to know about Jesus, God will find the way to reach them. If he can't do so by men, he'll do so by angels. We're finding, for example, in the Muslim world today, in areas where people seem to be very far removed from the hearing of the gospel, and when where it's illegal to bring the Christian message in, we find in many of those countries, people are getting converted to Christ through dreams and visions. God is reaching them in other ways. Point of the matter is that if people want to know about God, I would like to believe that God is going to find a way to reach them with his message. But again, we just trust that God is a God of justice. Yep. And, and I love that you referenced earlier the uh, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God sermon. Um, I know that I've, I've heard from more than one person saying, I couldn't believe in a God who's angry enough and vengeful enough that because I made a mistake, because I'm human and fallible, you know, that uh, he wants to send me to hell. And, and it's, it's sad to think how distorted that thinking is, that uh, to think that, that God wants them, you know, to fail or wants them to suffer. Um, I think that the people who come closest, and I think C.S. Lewis is a great example of this, it seems like the overwhelming focus of, of what led them to God was the realization that no matter what, God loved them and wanted them to come to him, and, and that love is what motivated them to make the changes, to, to turn to him and, and embrace you know, his son. Maybe completely. Well, next week, we're going to be looking a little more at this issue. We'll be looking at the question about the resurrection, what happens at the resurrection, and the judgments that take place there. And then we'll talk about the nature of eternity itself. What is heaven like? And I've never been there, but the scriptures do tell us quite a bit about heaven. And so we'll see what the scriptures do say. And then our last part of this series is going to be dealing with how to die well, Mm. not just from the standpoint of 
dying courageously in Christ and trusting him, but things that we need to do, reconciling with other people that we may have disputes with, making sure our estate is in order, last will and testament, things like that. That'll be our last session on this series. Well, I'm looking forward to it. This has been very instructive. And even though uh, some people consider death kind of a macabre uh, you know, topic, I think there's a lot of peace in, in acknowledging it and approaching it and recognizing it really is a part of life. Thank you, Colonel. Thank you. It's been a great day.